Today's episode of Beyond the Mask is presented by the team at CRNA Financial Planning. Get a free consultation today to be guided through the complexities of investing and financial planning. Just visit crnafinancialplanning.com. Beyond the Mask is also sponsored by crnaeducation.com. CRNAs, you can get the CE credits you need by just going to crnaeducation.com. They have over 100 AANA prior approved credits, all four core CPC modules, and even over 40 pharmacology credits. No subscriptions. It's all online and mobile friendly. Just go to crnaeducation.com. And don't forget, listening to our podcast can earn you Class B credits. For more information on how you can submit them, check out our CE credit tab on our website, beyondthemaskpodcast.com. Welcome to Beyond the Mask, innovation and opportunities for CRNAs and advanced practice nurses with certified financial planner Jeremy Stanley and CRNA Sharon Pierce. Jeremy Stanley has worked with CRNAs for more than 23 years, and Sharon Pierce is a former president of the AANA and the NCANA. Join us as we leave the operating room and learn the latest in the CRNA and advanced practice nurse industries. Beyond the Mask starts in 10, 9, 8, 7. Hey there, this is Sharon. I am in Pennsylvania at the Pennsylvania State Meeting, and Jeremy has not joined me today, so I am lucky enough, and you listeners are lucky enough, to know that I have been joined by one of our new guest co-hosts, and that's Angie Mund. I'm so excited. Angie and I have known each other for a very long time, and we were fortunate enough that we've got a great topic that we're going to go over today. So Angie, for the people in CRNA Nation who do not know you, I don't know what rock they've been under, but why don't you tell us a little bit about you? So most recently, I'm the ANA president, which um, has been an amazing opportunity for me this year. My real job is I'm a department chair at the Medical University of South Carolina, where I'm privileged to lead a team of PAs, nurse anesthetists, genetic counselors, and cardiovascular perfusionists. I'm I'm very grateful for that. I've also been a program director, and uh, one of the reasons why I think Sharon asked me to, to be a part of this is I was an Army, I'm an Army veteran. I was in the U.S. Army Nurse Corps for 10 years, and this topic is uh, very important and near and dear to my heart. So thanks, Sharon, for allowing me to come in uh, and join you today. Absolutely, and you were executive director of Havana at one time, too, the association. What, what? Veterans Affairs Nurse Anesthetists. I, was, I went to school at the Minneapolis VA. I have a certificate in nurse anesthesia, and I was really lucky to work there as a nurse and see the challenges that PTSD really brings to our veteran mm-hmm. population and the really important role that nurse anesthetists play in making sure that they have a, a, a smooth anesthetic. And I'll, I'll be a little biased is from my experience from working in Army hospitals and VA hospitals is I think that veterans do the best job taking care of veterans mm-hmm. in those places because we do have a very different understanding of PTSD and what that means and, and how to deal with our military patients. Mm-hmm. So I guess everybody can realize that we will be talking about PTSD and considerations for the healthcare provider the anesthesia provider, and we're lucky enough today to have as our guest, Eye Candy Randy. (laughs) 
you. Randy Cornelius. So, Randy, welcome back. Thank tell, you. Tell our listeners a little bit about yourself. I grew up in rural Iowa, eastern Iowa. I always want to say northeast, but then everybody corrects me. I grew up, uh, if you know the college time. We're both terms. blonde. We don't know. <laughs> yeah. Um, I grew up by Cedar Falls, Iowa. You um, went home of the University of Northern Iowa, but it's a small town there. Left. Cause I, wasn't, I didn't know what I wanted to do coming out of high school. So I joined the Army. Tell people I worked on helicopters for eight years. Got out, went back, went to nursing school. Then made the transition eventually to become a CRNA. I continue to serve. So um, just recently, I went out on my own as a private contractor. So. I'm a 1099 CRNA trying to learn that business. Oh, my goodness. So, so you don't work with Mark anymore? Nope. I left that I, that amazing group. They are an amazing group. It was a hard decision to make. but Yeah, I bet, because so. it's a great story how he recruited you. You were deployed, right, whenever yes. he recruited you? Yes, I That's was. That's de- some interview. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> yes. He's, uh, he's, he loves that story. Well, I love that story. So. So they'll have to go back and listen to your other podcast to hear all of that story. All right. Well, let's go ahead and kick this topic off. And I think I'll probably have to put a water hose between uh, on you guys here. And so we'll just uh, we'll just let it go because you guys both know more about this probably than I do. So how did you get interested um, in considerations for PTSD? It goes back to 2010. I was I did an anesthetic on an individual who was... I knew it was military. Um, I knew she was in an event. Um, she was at the Fort Hood shooting in 2009, in which that individual killed 13 people mm. and injured 30. So peripherally, I knew of her because she was in the same reserve unit as I was. I do the anesthetic. Great, an- you know, well, I call it great nowadays. You know, every, your anesthetic always gets better as the stories get going. Sure. But, um, the actual anesthetic was uneventful. But when I got her back to the recovery room, she woke up, she was more waking, she was emerging, and she got combative on me. Mm-hmm. So, you know, what do you do with every patient who gets really combative? I hit her with first ed, midazolam. Mm-hmm. And then shortly after, I think probably a couple months later, then I got mobilized to Fort Gordon, Georgia, to uh, the Dwight, David Dwight Eisenhower Army Medical Center, DDEMC. And again, now, so now you're here with the Army, and they would tell you that, yes, this patient has PTSD. But then I realized nobody could agree on the anesthetics. Like one person mm-hmm. was like, no, you do not give them ketamine. And she was like, told me like, well, you, we never give our pilots ketamine. I'm like, yeah, we do. And then another, I had another anesthesia provider said, well, I'm going to give them anti-delirium to speed them up through phase two. And I'm like, what? what? what's the history of this? I'm like, there's got to be history in this. And, I go, and this was 2010. So the army in the United States, we are in a surge in Iraq, meaning we pumped a lot of service members in there. We is the height of our conflict. And I say, I was like, this is going to happen. This is going to affect not just the Army's hospitals, but it's going to come to our small towns. And I actually had a conversation with somebody. He's like, no. He goes, it's going to be in the big facilities. That's where the veterans are going to be taken care of. And I'm like, no. These National Guardsmen, the reservists that have been exposed to all this, they're going to come back home. They're going to have their gallbladders out. They're going to have an appendectomy done. They're going to have something done at home. So we have to figure out how to do, to treat, do an anesthetic on these people so that we, you don't have happen to me. I couldn't find the research. Luckily, I ended up, like, shortly again, I ended up going up to Fort Gordon, or not Fort Gordon, um, Fort Lewis, George, Fort Lewis, Washington, to um, Madigan Army Hospital. Mm-hmm. And jokingly, I'm going to say I ran into this kind of bum of a CRNA because he's my friend now, uh, Rich Jacobson. Mm-hmm. He was active duty. He's an Iowan. Um, and I asked him, I was like, and he was like, oh, this is the medication we use. And it clicked on me. It turned, it, it went from a struggle of finding the information to all the information right out in front of me. So... 
And I gave this presentation in 2010, and I was like, all right, well, everything's good. And then I slowly just realized that people still weren't getting the message. Um, my wife is an operating room nurse, circulator. She knew I did this presentation. She asked me, she called me up one day, and she goes, hey, we got a patient who has PTSD. How do you do it? So I talked to her. I'm like, this is what you have to do for an anesthetic. And she literally goes, well, I told the, the, the provider, and he goes, well, I'm just going to hit him with everything. And I was like, you know, I wouldn't want to have been that individual because you get hit with everything, you're going to just feel crummy the rest of the day. He's probably spent four hours in PACU. She said another time they did it, right during wake-up, the surgeon did what you didn't want to do, and that was to startle the patient. So, um, And just the other day, I was at a place, and they, I heard him say they had a patient with PTSD, and the one provider goes, well, I'm going to give Versed and ketamine. I didn't have the heart to correct him. I was like, all right. So, And luckily, Panna asked me to come out here to present on PTSD and anesthesia considerations. So, but, you know, and not just to go through the mill. And that's how I got into interest. It was that okay. one individual. Mm-hmm. And I actually met up with her later on at a military assembly. And they were having a discussion about active shooters. And that's when it keyed in on me. Because then I watched her literally become visibly upset and had to leave. And I went up and I apologized to her. I was like, you probably don't remember, but I did your anesthetic. And she goes, yeah, I do remember that. And I was like, well, this is your pro- you had a problem. And I go, and I did you wrong. And I've learned from it. And she goes, I don't remember it. But she did say, she goes, okay, thank you. And I was like, you know, I've trained myself to do it. And so, but then in my original presentations, I talked to I focused on the military. But then it dawned on me, like probably a couple of years ago when I redid the presentation, that just the things that are going on in the world, mm. there is a lot of traumatic events, just the mass shootings that go on. Um, you know, I can't even remember. We just had a mass a shooting, and I think actually MUSC had something happen. Yeah, we had uh, a shooting. We've had a couple now in our parking garages, and they haven't been mass shootings, but just the locking down the hospital because there is somebody out there, and it was really close to one of our one of our OR buildings. Yeah, and you know, it's just not the shootings. It's you know, you think about the car accidents, the weather systems that go on. It's just it's a traumatic event in somebody's life, and all it takes is for the individual to feel like their life was threatened. So, yeah, and I think one thing you said, Randy, I think is important for listeners too, because it stood out for me too. Is I think the first time that I took care of someone with PTSD at the Minneapolis VA and seeing what they're going through, they're so afraid that our ability to not have them get to that point, I, so, I think, is so important. But I appreciated your comment on the surgeon startling them, because too often I think we only think of the pharmacologic uh, management, the anesthesia mm. part of it. But one of the things when I teach our nurse anesthesia residents when we take care of patients with PTSD is don't stand behind them. Make sure they can always see you. What I have found helpful, and I think it's through my military training, sometimes that voice of a commander clearly telling them that they're safe as you're getting to that pharmacologic piece is is really important also. So I think that was a great comment. Well, you've talked about kind of drive-by, what to do, what not to do. Give us the recipe here, because I, I don't even know. Um, it's not just us. It's not just the anesthesia provider. It's the entire perioperative crew. So in the, if you're in the, in the pre-op, you have to establish a good rapport with that individual. Um, ask them. When you meet some people that have PTSD, they don't openly tell you. And when they admit it, you can see just the anguish in their face. Like they, it, There's a stigma about it, and I, I wish we really could get rid of that stigma of saying, mm-hmm. I have PTSD, because if you know it, and you have it, then you can be treated for it. Um, I tell a story. One of my friends who's a physician assistant, we deployed to Iraq in 03. 
within the last year, he admitted it to me. And I could see just, he, he was really anguished to tell him, like, he was ashamed of it. And I was like, hey, at least you're getting treatment for it. But I tell people, I said, so when I do my pre-op uh, evaluation, I ask, do you have any problems with anesthesia? And you can say, they're like, yeah, I wake up violently. Mm-hmm. Or, you know, I have PTSD. And I'm like, well, thank you for telling me that because, you know, I know what to do. I can take care of you. We can make this a smooth, peaceful ability for you. You know, that when you wake up, it's going to be okay. I'm going to take good care of you. And I can, I've seen it about a couple of times where there's somebody who's just like, either they, did, they were relaxed or you could see it in the, you know, the anxiety of the family member. So just the pre-op area is the best one. Once you get them in the operating room, you know, there are things you do want to avoid because PTSD patients are at a high risk of emergence delirium. So they're going to wake up agitated. And once you know that, well, how to treat emergence delirium, you can do it. So you do want to avoid the volatiles. Um, really, I tell everybody a total intravenous anesthetic is the way to go. Hmm. Um, the veteran CRNAs that have done it, they're like, yes, they will swear by a TIVA wake-up is the best thing ever. Um, but you actually do want to avoid Versed. You, you think it's counterintuitive. You're like, well, they're anxious. I need to give them Versed. It's not. Um, Versed is a risk for causing emergence delirium. And the weird thing with PTSD is it reduces the binding sites from Adazolam or Versed onto the GABA-A receptor. Really? So it'll give them, it'll reduce their anxiety, but it does not reduce the hyperarousal of them waking up. So that's why you don't want to give it to them. Okay. So that's why I said when I gave her the Versed, I actually probably did the wrong thing. Um, and there's other medications you can give. You know, I alluded that when I was in Fort Gordon, they said, well, don't give the individual ketamine. Isn't that how we treat it now? It is now, but back then, this was 2010, and I think that landmark study by the one individual doing ketamine infusions did. But really why people said not to give ketamine was based on the induction doses we were sure. giving. It, you know, I call them, you put the person in the K-hole. The K-hole. You know, mm-hmm. you know, exactly. Yeah. You know, and I was like, well, anybody's going to have problems. But you can safely give a sub-anesthetic dose of, you know, I tell everybody it's about 0.5 milligrams per kilo on induction or once they're induced. And that's just actually enough to re- help reduce the glutamate, which is our problem with PTSD, that we have too much glutamate. A PTSD sufferer has too much glutamate going on in their brain that allows the amygdala to run rampant. So if you can reduce the glutamate, it helps reduce that emergence delirium. So um, the other drug I tell everybody I swear by is dexamethotomidine, Presidex. Mm-hmm. Either give them a bolus or you run a little infusion. And I go, eventually, you'll get your timing down of when to give it. Um, and you can give it as a rescue drug. I caveat as I tell people, I'm like, ketamine is not a rescue drug if you wake up under emergence delirium. So that's your anesthetic. But in the, when you bring them into the recovery room, again, you know, as you're waking up, you tell people, you know, no loud noises. I mean, I've heard people say they put up signs on the side of the door that says a PTSD patient. So they kind of know not to make loud noises, you know, tell the circulators, the scrub techs, let's not move the pans in and out. Let's keep it quiet. Let's reduce the noise level. No loud music, even though we shouldn't have loud music waking up on a patient. But we know it happens because everybody likes music. Recovery, if you can keep the patient who took, you know, if you can find the nurse who did the pre-op, the consistency is great. If you have family involved, um, I think I've heard that some places, even like the VAs, actually have a PTSD recovery area. Because, you know, the PACUs are noisy with everything that's going on. So they will actually put them in a different area so they can keep the noise level down. And in my presentation, I share an article, a clip of it that was co-authored by Garrett Peterson, you know, amazing CRNA up in Minneapolis VA, if I remember right, yep. um, that gives you the full layout of pre-op, through the OR, what to do, and even post-op. So, yeah. 
Yeah, we saw a lot of we saw a lot of PTSD, especially after OIF, OEF, because not only were we seeing, from my experience, I thought Vietnam vets really struggled with it. I think a lot of it is the challenges that they had coming home and coming back into society, I think really elevated the stigma of PTSD and they didn't get the help that they wanted. But now we have young men who are very strong and when they're having emergence delirium and anything that we can do to help them with their PTSD, because they're going to live with it for a long time. And the things that we do, and I was going to ask you a question, is um, what are your thoughts on running a Presidex infusion during emergence and extubation? Have you done that? I, I really haven't because most of the cases where I work at were very quick. So I just go with the bolus technique. You know, I'm going to give them like half mic per kilo. Ideal if it's going to go over an hour. As I tell people, like, oh, I, I've been burned before on one. And, you know, the patient woke up great, but he was in PACU for about two hours. And my the PACU nurses reminded me that the next day when I showed up. Oh, yeah. Because it was a night case. You know, we, I was oh, done at wow. 9. They were done at 11 when they finally, the, guy, the individual finally woke up enough to meet discharge criteria. So, but yeah, I think you could. It's a nice, easy one. Um, when talking about TIVAs, you know, I was talking with one anesthesia provider who's a veteran, and he worked with the Army's elite. When I'm I mean, the elite of the elite. And he said he had to do a lot of anesthetics on this one individual. And he goes, this is a guy who is, you know, very, very fit, very muscular, very strong because of what he did. And he goes, and he wakes, he would wake up with a mass, major emergence delirium. He goes, but he could do his wake up just, he goes, propofol infusion with a lidocaine infusion. He goes, but they had that bond because they worked together on the, right. other, you know, what they did on the other side of the army. But he, since they had that friendship, he goes, I can wake him up because he, it was a trusting issue that he had. So, All right. Let me ask you a question. Do you take them into the recovery room with the oral airway in and they're just breathing and let them wake up there? I mean, the OR is always, I don't know about where you, where you guys are at, but everybody rushes in. And if somebody has a little emergence delirium, they're yelling at them and holding them down. And so I try and take them into the PACU because they, they leave the lights down in the PACU all the time where, where I work at. And... You know, they can come in, get all their vital signs, get them straightened out, get away from them, and just let them wake up gently. Yeah. If you want, you want to emerge them when all the meds are peaking. And, you know, and I told people yesterday when I was presenting this at, Pens at the PANA meeting, I just realized, I'm like, oh, the things I'm telling you, you select. You don't give them everything. Because I was like, you know, because I've had people say, well, what if I don't have Presidex? Well, you, you can actually give Phenergan, Promethazine, as a medicine to help mm -hmm. slow that wake up or Draperidol. You know, it's another... It's really? Draperidol? Yeah, oh, I wouldn't choose that one. I've seen people walk out of the uh, uh, the ambulatory surgery center in a gown with their naked ass hanging out, <laughs> feeling uh, that impending doom, and left. Yeah. Um, Presidex is a game changer. Yeah. I've but, just now Yeah, but Draperidol, I think, you know, and I, I tell people, I said, and it, you give it while they're still asleep. So I think that impending doom is mm -hmm. over so about 20 to 30 minutes and then okay they'll just kind of i don't even it's not even at any facilities i work at anymore it's coming back it's coming back it's yeah. i mean it, it which is definitely good. It's a great drug. Yeah, yeah definitely had its but, place yeah but press dexamethetomidine has been the game changer mm -hmm. and it you know but I, I know i've had people just tell me they're like well, what if i can't get it i'm like ask for it just ask for it it'll it'll change everything for you mm. and I, I woke him up on the infusion like super low, you know, start, mm -hmm. you know, 0.5, bring them, bring them down to about 0.1. So there's just a smidge and 
it really does work pretty nice. But you have to be, I think, Randy, you had a good point of you have to make sure that you're working somewhere where they recognize that the, the wake-up might take a little bit longer, but it's in the best interest of the patient, it really is. Yeah, and that was what happened with, my, tough. with my wife was, you know, the anesthesia provider did everything right, and then the OR decided they wanted to rush, and then started, hey, wake up, wake up, and shaking the patient. And mm. she was like, you could just see everybody, you know, the anesthesia provider and herself was just like, you, you just ruined a nice anesthetic because now you are going to startle that individual. Hey, CRNAs, it's time to simplify your continuing education. Welcome to CRNAeducation.com, your trusted provider for CPC core modules and a plethora of Class A CE credits. You can explore 43 detailed articles covering various anesthesia topics, all from your favorite device, anytime, anywhere. And with over 40 pharmacology CE credits, meet your state board requirements effortlessly. Whether you need a few credits or everything to recertify, we have what you need. Just complete your credits online without any subscriptions or recurring charges. You can trust in our 100% CRNA-owned platform, established in 2011, ensuring you receive the best in customer service and educational content. Ready to learn? Go to crnaeducation.com making continuing education easy and accessible. And don't forget that support is always a quick email or a text or phone call away. To sign up and learn more, just go to crnaeducation.com. Randy, you mentioned a little bit about some of the physi- pathophysiology, and I think, it's, I think it's really important that we understand that. You mentioned a little bit of it. Can you, can you get a little bit more in depth for that for our listeners? I think the understanding that it, this isn't that there is pathophysiology mm-hmm. truly behind it. I yeah. think that'd be helpful. So for PTSD, what happens is there's an actual hyperactive glutaminergic response. So I said that glutamate is our problem. Glutamate is that neurotransmitter between the hippocampus, the amygdala, the reptile brain. I think you guys had in the one pro- mm-hmm. um, just recently in one of your podcasts, you know, the fight or flight syndrome we have. Well, all that extra glutamate causes, you know, an increase in calcium, which we basically, the brain gets rewired. Well, the other things that keep the amygdala in check have volume reduction. So when the person has that triggering event, the amygdala sends out that response of it's fight or flight, but you don't have the hippocampus, the singular angular cortex to keep everything in check. And that's why they get individuals PTSD get wound up. And that's what I talked about with ketamine is why it happens in emergency delirium is as we bring our gases off, if you use a volatile, or as, or as we're waking up, the first sense that comes back to us is hearing. And I tell, you know, mm-hmm. since I, I pretty much have presented to nurse anesthetist. I was like, remember in nursing school, we were taught what's the last sense to go. It's hearing, but it's also our first one to come back. Well, now you got this individual waking up, hearing's the first thing that comes back to them and they get startled and they're in an unfamiliar territory and now it just runs rampant on them. So if you can, kind of that ketamine helps break that down, but if you can help keep that smooth wake up going, yeah, it'll be good. So yeah. And then it does, ketamine does kind of make sense then when you think about the pathophysiology of it, doesn't it? Yeah. Makes good yeah, sense. Yeah, that was a great ANA article that got my resource on that one. That's okay. fi- I finally proved because, you know, they were using it in, uh, I think, the burn units. And they really started oh. releasing, realizing that ketamine was not causing the problems. And then I can't remember when it, the study, but how ketamine clinics go. Because, you know, you to treat PTSD, you have the pharmacology method, which treats the symptoms. But then you have the cognitive behaviors. And that's when, when people tell me they have PTSD, I always ask them, like, are you getting treatment? You know, are, are you talking to a professional? And actually, I just remember this because I talked to one guy who, you know, that one provider who'd worked with the elite of the army 
And he said, he goes, it took him three people to finally match up with an individual that could truly understand what he had gone through, what he'd been seen or what everything like that. So, you know, if you have PTSD and you're like, I just don't, you're not meshing with that provider. You just don't always get along with everybody, you know, say, Hey, I'm, I don't think this is working. Find somebody else. He said he it took him three people before he found somebody that can make, actually make a connection and get to what he wanted. And he goes, he got the therapy and he's, he's doing better, but you know, just medications alone don't do it. You know, if you yeah. talk with people, they just say, I don't like the way the medications work. I don't like the way it makes me feel. And, you know, we talk about like, you know, when if you're on a psychiatric, a psychiatric, a psychiatric medicine is if it doesn't work, you have to come off of it, wait how many weeks, try another one, mm-hmm. you know, and then if it doesn't work, and I can't remember the stats, I think it's like 60% of the time the meds don't work. So then they get added another, you know, they just keep adding medications. So, yeah, that's the way. But, well, let's back up and talk about PTSD itself. And so what are the criteria to be diagnosed with PTSD? Well, there's, there's a whole bunch of criteria. First, obviously, I alluded to, you have to have the stressor. You have to have something that you've seen directly or they say indirectly. You know, you just be given the news that somebody's been, you know, has happened, something happened to them. Or the indirect, I call it, you know, that's your firefighters, police department, paramedics. They're, you know, they're responding to scenes. It, you know, so it's just that continuous wear. And I think that's where I think we're seeing some of our healthcare providers getting it. You know, they might not see the direct response or the direct threat, but it's just the exposure to everything that's going on. And then you have to have the intrusion symptoms, um, the unwanting setting memories, the nightmares, the flashbacks. And I think that's what everybody kind of talks about. And mm-hmm. I allude to that. You know, I tell people, I said, you know, I probably have a varying degree of PTSD just from my military stuff. And I tell a story. I was like, you know, I was in Desert Shield, Desert Storm. And we were in Dahran, Saudi Arabia, and we had a, we'd get scud attacks, those missile attacks that uh, Saddam Hussein would launch to us. Siren would go off, and you'd run to the bunker. Three years later, I'm stationed up at Fort Drum, New York. Um, town siren goes off, and I'd not heard that siren in three years. I tell people I ran out of my bedroom, down a hall through a kitchen, made a hard left through the living room, ran past my roommate who was eating cocoa puffs. He might not have been, but I'm making it up. And he ate cocoa puffs. <laughs> and I was halfway down the stairs before I realized what I was doing. Hmm. You know, and then I had to turn around and walk back up and he was still eating his cocoa puffs watching TV and he looked at me and I was like, don't say a word, but he also knew because he was a small event. So yeah. Um, then you also got the avoidance. Um, you, you don't want to go near something that didn't happen. You know, I knew an individual that was in a bad car accident. She was hit by a car working construction on an interstate and she would not drive that portion of the interstate. That one, she would go, I will drive an hour north or south to avoid that one area. Um, and then you also have the negative alterations in cognition mood, you know, the inability to recall key features. And I got to be careful how I say this. So a project I'm working on, um, we interviewed a CRNA who was in a major, major event. And I knew that there was, a two, it was just two CRNAs in that event. And I was like, well, who's the other individual? And the guy goes, I don't know. I was like, y- you do not remember who was your fellow CRNA in the other operating room. And he's like, nope, can't recall. Um, eventually found the individual who was the other one and he knew immediately he goes oh yeah he was so-and-so was in my the other room he goes I trained him we were stationed together he literally had just blocked that guy's name out, so he just couldn't remember because he was new kind of like probably been practicing for a year and got put in that event so you know baptize baptism under fire so and in an interviewing we when we were asking questions with him you could tell you know he would avoid certain things that we wanted to talk about and you know, you can have all kinds of the different system symptoms. You don't need all of them. It's just one or two. But, you know, it's 
the symptoms also have to create a distress or a functional impairment, and then also the symptoms cannot be due to medication, substance abuse, or other illnesses. So that's the diagnostics. It's, it, it resonates a little bit with me. You're mentioning somebody who'd only been out a year. Is I saw that when I was down at Brook Army Medical Center, and we were training the next generation of CRNAs, and they were deployed almost as soon as they graduated. And you think about the coping mechanisms of a, of a young soldier in this case, that they haven't had much of that, and now they're in those situations that I think we had some incredible challenges, and I'll probably be a little, I'll be controversial. I don't think the Army did a very good job of them coming home. I just don't think they did. Yeah, I agree. And, and I think we're seeing the long-term effects of that in the operating room because they, um, the stigma of it, I think, is, you know, you think about these young muscular men mm-hmm. and I've got to, I've got to be the hero and do all that is they have so many challenges. I don't think we caught enough of them. And now we're seeing them in the OR, especially the ones that are non-diagnosed. Yeah. So talk to a little bit about um, the treatment options for PTSD. And I, I kind of alluded that to the, the psychotherapy or the cognitive behavior therapy is, you know, that's reworking the brain. You, you have to, they have to talk about it. So you got to get them to rethink things, things like that. Um, the medications, though, the pharmacology, the, the two conventional ones are using your selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors and your selective norepinephrine reuptake inhibitors. So your SSRIs and your SNRIs are your two main medications. But then I also talk about there's unconventional methods out there. MDMA, also known as ecstasy, is... It's still out in the trials, and I, I just checked before the other day that, um, it, yeah, they're still in phase three clinical trials because it's, and I tell people, I go, I've never taken ecstasy. I've never seen anybody. I kind of leave a sheltered life there in Iowa. Um, but it gets the individual to <laughs> Never action. been to a rave, Randy? No, that, that was beyond my time period. I'm, really? I'm, it has not been. No. Oh, yeah. I went to watch. <laughs> no, never been to. No, I went no. with. Brent Summer, no less. I bet that was an <laughs> eye-opening experience. It was an eye-opening experience. Yeah. It was interesting. No, um, so basically the medication, by using MDMA, it gets the person to try to, you know, we say let their guard down and open up, and they can get them to talk. So that's how, huh. you know, that's how MDMAs, huh. they're using it as the clinical trial. Well, that makes trial. sense because yeah. they, w- they want to use they want their mouth. To- well, they do. They sell pacifiers, the candy pacifiers at the raves because they want something in their mouth. They're either talking or sucking on something. Huh. Sharon's, or Angie's looking at me like, we've never been to a rave and Sharon's <laughs> been to one, so... Um, yeah, I've never been to one either. But, <laughs> well, I just went to watch. Okay. But that's also all ketamine. I'm a people watcher. <laughs> but that's how the ketamine infusion clinics work, mm-hmm. is it gets the individual to drop their guard a little bit and open up and talk, and that's what they want them to do. So um, another one is marijuana, mm-hmm. medicinal marijuana. And I used to tell what states have, and I'm like, I can't keep up anymore. But really, marijuana only helps with the symptoms. And that's what I talk about the other medications, like your SSRIs and SNRIs don't really cure. It helps with the symptoms. But ketamine, they claim, ketamine, yeah, well, does because, cure it. Because you get them talking. So they're actually using the cognitive behavior therapies. they got to get them to talk mm. through what they've witnessed, what they've seen. Just talking with people helps. You know, so I, mean, I think people, they don't want, you know, if, you don't always want to talk about it. Yeah. And they can, because that stigma. So, I mean, like I said, when I talked, when my friend said he admitted it, I could see the anguish on his face. And I was like, dude, it, it's okay to have it. You know, I'm hoping you're, you're getting therapy with it. And he's like, yeah. I was like, oh, good. So, hmm. how many people really ha- suffer with PTSD? So, about 31.3 million people have it in the United States. 31 so million. So, we say that, um, you know, I say you had to have a traumatic event in your life. So, 
at least 223 million people have some type of traumatic event at least once in your life. And then up to 20% of those individuals will go on to develop PTSD. 24.4 million people have PTSD at any given time in the U.S. Um, some other facts are women are twice as likely. Um, I didn't know that. Yeah. Well, yeah. Uh, you kind of reel that out and it kind of makes sense. Not a lot of men get raped, right? And think about how many women have been raped. So I'm sure I, I've taken care of so many women who um, suffered from PTSD from that kind of experience. So I would imagine that those two things are kind of linked. Yeah. And I tell people, I said, if I could figure out why, and then they're trying to find out why one person develops PTSD over another one. And I, you know, that's, that was never the scope of my P, my presentation. Maybe I should make another one. So you guys have done a podcast on that. I think um, own PTSD. I think, oh, uh, yes. Jerry uh, Hogan. And, um, uh, Chuck Griffiths. Yes. Yes. And I think Chuck was, I think he's still on the research part of it. Um, he, he, he is, Jerry, of course, had PTSD, and um, I kind of figured it out before he let the cat out of the bag. We were texting one night, and I'm, I think I was AANA president at the time, or it was right afterwards, so I probably had PTSD too, uh, to be perfectly honest. But he was very abrasive in his texts, not like Jerry at all not like him at all and finally he just sends to me i am done with you and jerry and i have been like brother and sister since we were in anesthesia school together and i called his wife the next day and i said something's wrong with jerry and she kind of tried to glaze over it and then finally he did admit to me and that's why he went back and got his mp degree and works Psych uh, mental health. Yeah, psych mental health. Maybe it was him that said it, that it, it took a couple people oh. that he finally... Realized. I mean, yeah. he he had such anger. And it was, he is just, he was just not like that as long as I knew him. But when I got that text, I'll never forget it because I was, I was laying in the bed beside oh, Pierce. Yep, it mm. was Pierce. And I, I leaned over, I go, look at this. Something is wrong with Jerry. Those, those statistics really are pretty alarming, and I think it really does loop back to some of the first comments that you made of people saying veterans are going to end up in the bigger facilities. There's not. I mean, they're, they're all over. But it'd be interesting when we think about the ones that are diagnosed and all the ones that are not diagnosed or misdiagnosed or underdiagnosed, that those numbers are, I'm sure, considerably higher than, than the yeah. statistics that are out there. Yeah. I all right. I've got a question. Does Everybody who has emergence delirium, do they all have PTSD? No. So you can have emergence delirium without PTSD. No. We, we know that there's certain populations, you know, because I tell people, I go, you know, how do you, when I work with our, our nurse anesthesia residents, I'm like, well, what's a young male wake up under SIVO? And they're like, what do you call that? And they're like, young male wake up. I'm like, yeah. no, no. I'm like, but what are they doing? You know, like, well, they wake up and I'm like, they come up swinging. Yeah, they do. They come up violent and I was like, well, what do you call that? And they're like, young male wake up. And I'm like, okay, well, I'm like, you can't talk to them. They're, they're not going to respond to you. They're, you know, they're combative and all that. And I go, so what's that like? And I'm like, what is that? And they're like, young male wake up. I'm like, okay, I, I've got to figure out how to answer my, you know, change the question a little bit. And I go, if that individual was a pediatric patient, what would you call it? And they're like, emergency delirium. And I was like, why don't we call that in the young male? Because that's exactly what ah, it is. Yep, that's a very good point. So, 
once I found that information out, I was like, oh, buddy, my young males, they'll get hit with Presidex. And then, wow. oh, the well, PACU nurses love me for that one. Sure. Mm-hmm. Well, the reason why I ask is because I put Pierce to sleep a number of years ago, and he had emergent delirium. <laughs> I mean, he looked like the exorcist rolling around on that bed. <laughs> Yeah, the alligator roll. Oh, my gosh. Uh, number one, I, it was supposed to be like a Big Mac case. And Pierce doesn't drink because he's my designated driver, right? So I'd given him two of Versed. I gave him a cc of fentanyl. I had turned around for a second, and the doctor goes, Sharon. And I look around, and he is black and apneic. Oh, jeez. <laughs> I thought, that'll make the papers. <laughs> But he had emergent delirium. My girlfriend told me later, she said, did you talk to him when he was waking up? I go, well, of course I did. She goes, he had PTSD from listening to your voice. (laughs) So, you know, Pierce had renal cell carcinoma. He had a resection in January. It never crossed my mind to tell them that he had had emergent delirium. I really bought into what my friend Dana told me that, it was my voice talking no, to him. And I swear to God, they come and got me as soon as they got him in recovery room. He was coming over the side of the bed. He, of course, he had a Foley in and, you know, that kind of put him off. That, yeah, they want to stand up because they think they got a yeah. piece standing up the whole nine yards. But he was, you could look at him and tell he had no idea where he was at. They had to give him Presidex. Mm-hmm. I mean, he was, he, he was just grunting like some neanderthal and he would just look at me and he would see right through did, me did you call him tim the Toolman taylor <laughs> i should have <laughs> yeah. no i think some, some people are susceptible to it mm-hmm. and what if and you know i've taken care of a person and they told me like i come up swinging mm-hmm. and like i don't mean to mm-hmm. and, you know he's like i'm the nicest person you'll ever meet but he mm-hmm. just and i was like that's okay i'm like you're, you're telling me that because you know, I can keep my arms away from somebody, mm-hmm. but you know, I always tell people, I go, I got to also think of my coworkers, the nurses who have to jump on that patient who is getting combative coming up. And I go, if they take a right hook, they're going to, they're going to be mad at you for the rest of the day. You know, I probably have to tell them like, oh, you took one, but you're not get you don't get to go home yet. Mm-hmm. So yeah, you got to think of your coworkers. And I think being forewarned is such, such an important thing. Cause then you can plan ahead all the mm-hmm. things that that you just talked about with your anesthetics that from my experience too is it's a lot easier to prevent it than to treat it yeah. such a difference and and for those that don't know me I'm five feet tall and when the big guys come up swinging there's it's a they challenge it's a out. challenging thing they can take me out so being forewarned is important yeah. yeah huge huge difference there today's show is brought to you by the folks at CRNA financial planning an independent consulting firm that offers financial planning services exclusively to CRNAs and their families. From planning for a child's future college expenses to building a predictable income stream in retirement, the firm is committed to offering you comprehensive financial services customized to fit your unique needs and objectives. If you have questions about your financial future, get them answered. Call the team at 855-304-3748. That's 855-304-3748. Or go online to crnafinancialplanning.com. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to switch gears just a little bit. And we, we touched on it briefly is, can you talk a little bit about the stigma, PTSD, and some thoughts on, on how we can deal with that? And I can't remember. I think it was a Miss America pageant winner who her father had PTSD, and she actually said she wanted to call it, she wanted to change it from post-traumatic stress disorder. She wanted to call it a disease. 
She goes, because a disorder is this, you know, if we call it a disease, then people are going to get treated for it adequately. And I just, I don't know why, I really don't have the answer why the stigma's there. I think part of it is you feel shame that, you know, there's something there. And, you know, I tell people, I've had things happen to me. I was on a party bus once and the lights got to me. And all of a sudden I was, I literally, they came to a bus stop and I was like, you got to get me off this bus. And... I just remember the ride back, you know, the individual, you know, he was able to get me back onto the bus because I was like, I'm walking back. I had no idea where, you know, eventually I had Google map it. And you, I just felt shame. Mm-hmm. You know, like somebody got to see me at my most vulnerable point, you mm-hmm. know, when something like that happens. Um, another friend of mine, he had PTSD and he was a, he's a family practice doctor. But he said that somebody told me like he couldn't take the medications because he would lose his license. And I'm like... I've never heard of a board of medicine saying that once you're on a medicine to help your symptoms, you're no longer allowed to practice. And I think that's part of it is people just, they're, they're afraid to, well, have to admit it because mental health is, you know, it's a stigma for just the mental health things. So, you know, I think we have to keep rem- reminding people it's okay to get help, openly say that you have a problem, and remove that stigma of having mental health illness. So if, until we get that, then I think it'll get better. But, but, you know, I can tell people, I said, you know, when they have it, I just say, thank you. Hey, you'll get through it. We're here for you. And I wonder if, you know, healthcare providers, maybe we are the ones to help with some of that stigma just by that comment that you just made. We're yeah. here for you. We'll get you through it. It's okay. You know, um, go back to the story. You know, that individual that got me into this, you know, that set me on the path of that. When I talked with her and said, you know, hey, you know, you, by the way, you need to let everybody know you have this wake up problem. And one day she messaged me and she said, hey, um, I just had surgery again for her related to that problem. And she told the provider, she has this emergency delirium, and then she has PTSD, and she woke up bad. Mm. She messaged me, and she said all that they told her was when she woke up, she was yelling at people to get down, that she could smell the gunpowder. The individual thought it was her related, was related to her reaction to having Versed for her block, her nerve block. So he gave her Mazacon to reverse it, and that oh, really dumped sweet. it on. Um, wow. They actually had to send her to the emergency room. She was in an ASC, so an ambulance transfer to the emergency room. Um, when she got there, she was at, still acting up. She said she was hurting. And the emergency department nurses there started asking her husband, what drugs does she take? And he's like, she's not a, on any drugs. And they're like, no, she's on something because that's how drug takers, drug users act. Oh, wow. And, you know, and she was like, no, I'm, I'm hurting. And they're like, you've had a block. You can't hurt. And I'm like, well... Not everybody's block works. Yeah. That's just how yeah. it goes. Um, they were going to commit her to the psych ward. And he had to call her provider, her psychiatric provider, to tell the hospital, no, she has this incident. And, you know, you, you just got to get her through it and she'll be okay. And she asked me, she goes, what did I do wrong? And I could, you know, in the messaging, I could tell she hurt. And she goes, what did I do wrong? And I was like, you didn't do anything wrong. And she goes, I feel like I'm on day one again from the event like you know she'd been making a progress like she wow. she was doing like a road march for every individual that was you know her victim of that event and I was like hey, you know you just got to take this one day at a time you'll be okay and then she goes but I she goes I gotta have surgery again you know it was like a two-step she goes in two weeks I got to go back and I was like you got to tell the provider again you know this provider you know she did message me after that one and she goes I woke up great she goes I told the provider what happened and he goes oh I gotcha I, I'll take good care of you and actually got the original provider brought that individual in and said, this is how you do, this is how you treat individuals when they say they have PTSD and emergency delirium problems. These are the medications to avoid. And she goes, so she said, she said, thank you. Thank you for that. And I was like, anytime. I said, do you ever feel like reaching out, talking to me? 
message me. So. And what a great learning experience for the CRNA who did the first case. Oh, so it was um, not I, what, a it, CRNA anesthesia <laughs> provider. No. Well, her... her, her, that exp- her I was just going to say that explains a lot. Yeah. Well, I was there. trying to be nice. Well, yep. there you have I, it. I, I got commented when I presented this at National Congress in Chicago. An individual said that I uh, need to be a little nicer to our counterparts. Well, it's a fact. I mean... The provider who took care of the patient, it's a fact. It's not anything that's made up. And, yeah. and it could just as likely could have happened to anybody. Yeah. To be real, it doesn't mm-hmm. have to be a physician. But I hope that the anesthesia provider that struggled with managing PTSD learned something from yeah. it. And then the next time that they see a patient similar to that, they recall that experience and, and yeah. do, do a, a better job. Yeah. Like I said, it still amazes me when I hear people say, well, then I this is what I'm going to do or I'm not going to do. And I'm like, that's not how to do it. But, you know, and I think that article that Garrett Peterson co-authored really is the best resource I've ever found that tells, that gives you the whole game plan of what to do from beginning to end. Wow. So. I'm going to have to look that up. Yeah. Garrett's done a lot of, a lot of work in this issue because we saw a lot of it at the Minneapolis VA because we're big. Mm-hmm. But um, I just have to say, Randy, is I'm, I'm so grateful for all the work you're doing on this. Yeah, thank you. And actually it's, if you Google it, it was done in 2021, and the lead author's name is Tolly. But I remember Garrett is the co-author. Oh, I'm sorry, third. I'm looking at my resources. So you can find it in Anesthesia Analgesia, Adult Emergence Agitation, a Veteran-Focused Narrative Review. That, that is fantastic. That was yeah, one of the best references I ever found. So as we kind of wrap this up, is there something that you would like to share with our listeners? Um, yes. I actually, um, you know, <clears throat> we have Angie Mund here. And if Angie's husband, Steve, um, we lost him a couple years ago. And, you know, I didn't even know that Steve suffered with PTSD. And unfortunately, he lost that battle. And anybody that knows Steve, he was an amazing friend, leader to our profession and mentor. Um, but one thing you did was you established the Steve Munn Memorial Fund through the ANA Foundation. And I just ask everybody to, this is something important. So if you can please just go to the ANA Foundation, go to ANA.com, click on Foundation, it's a couple processes to get through, but you find the Steve Memorial Fund, and that fund goes to one thing is it gives scholarships to veterans who are going through school. So all our student registered nurse anesthetists or registered resident anesthesiists, RNAs, whatever. Um, if you're a veteran, you can apply for that one. But the other one is it does help fund research for PTSD. So, and I I have to say is I'm so I'm so grateful to be a member of the ANA is we already have it endowed. It was endowed, I think we're way above $80,000 just from donations, and we'll continue to, to do some good work. But I think, Randy, you getting out there in front of people, I think is so important on how we spread the word of our role in it and, um, and our loved ones and what we can do. Yeah. yeah. Steve was amazing. He was amazing. Yes, yes, he was. The only time we ever re-ran a podcast was one that Steve had done. And I'll share with both of y'all, when we first started this podcast, I had picked five people to be in our kickoff, and Steve was in it, and he told me no. Really? He did. He did. And, you know, he wound up later on coming back and uh, was on the podcast a couple of times, and he told me he was sorry that he told me no. (laughs) (laughs) Steven. So he made up for it, though. There you go. He did such a fantastic job, but... Randy, thanks for joining oh, us. Thank you for having me um, again. Good Lord, I learned a whole lot yeah, uh, me too. during this. So I think it's a wrap. 
Thanks for listening to Beyond the Mass with the absent Jeremy Stanley, myself, Sharon Pierce, and guest co-host Angie Mund. If you like our show and want to help us grow, Angie, can you tell our listeners how to help us grow? The best way to help is to like the show, share it on social media, tell your friends, and leave a review, but make it positive. As Jeremy says, we all know there's enough negativity in the world. Beyond the Mask is in the top 50 medical podcasts in the country and the number one in the CRNA community. Thank you to all our listeners for putting us there. Until the next time. Attention all certified nurse anesthetists. Are you in need of a reliable and quality continuing education option? Well, look no further than crnaeducation.com. We are an NBCRNA recognized provider offering all four core CPC modules to meet your certification requirements. You can choose from more than 100 AANA prior approved Class A CE credits with 43 articles covering a wide range of anesthesia topics. Need pharmacology CE credits? Well, we've got you covered there as well with over 40 pharmacology CE credits available. All credits are completed online and are mobile friendly. Choose articles worth one, two, or three credits. There's no subscriptions, no hidden fees, just the CE credits you need when you need them. Owned by CRNAs since 2011, you can trust in our commitment to your education. And customer service is always a quick email or phone call or even text away. To sign up and find out more about our education options, visit crnaeducation.com, your partner in continuing education. That's crnaeducation.com. Beyond the Mask is made possible by the team at CRNA Financial Planning. With almost two decades of experience, the firm guides CRNAs through the complexities of investing and financial planning. Schedule a free consultation today by calling 855-304-3748 or go online to crnafinancialplanning.com. Hi, this is Jackie Rolls, President of the International Federation of Nurse Anesthetists and President and Founder of Our Hearts, Your Hands, a global anesthesia support community that takes donations to allow nurse anesthetists in low and middle income countries to go to educational programs, buy equipment, or textbooks. Your donations are tax deductible, and we would appreciate your support. Be sure to subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, and anywhere you like to listen to shows. Also, be sure to check out beyondthemaskpodcast.com. Each episode is posted there with a corresponding blog post, and we timestamp important parts of the episode to help you quickly get to the content you're looking for. Also, check out the special series section on the site. You can follow along and catch up on the CRNA History Series, episodes specifically about political conversations in the industry, or try the CRNA Personal Finance Series. It's all on beyondthemaskpodcast.com. And if you have a question for the show or want to be a guest or even suggest a particular topic, fill out the contact form on the site or send an email directly to us at info at beyondthemaskpodcast.com. And lastly, let's take the conversation social. Check out our Beyond the Mask podcast Facebook page and Facebook group.